Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. Okay, everybody, welcome to another Live Art Market Pulse podcast. This week, we're going to be discussing the Sotheby's Hong Kong Contemporary Art Sales that took place over the weekend. They totaled about $81 million uh, in, in U.S. dollars. And they uh, were were the first real sign of weakness in the market. The overall uh, hammer ratio, which is the uh, actual aggregate hammer price of all the lots that sold, divided by the aggregate low estimate, was under one, meaning the bidding didn't reach the low estimate uh, for the aggregate of all the sales. And we'll get a little bit um, more into why that might be. That doesn't mean there weren't some very strong sales, which we'll try and talk about. And then we're going to talk a bit about freeze because that takes place on Wednesday of this week. And we've got um, a special guest, Adam Rutledge from Live Art, who's going to uh, give us his uh, take on what's happening in London, because that's where he sits, and he's about to head out to the opening party of the week. But before that, let me bring in George O'Dell, Sophie Coco, and Arena Novak, who are our ACE sales team, and let's talk a little bit about the artists who sold in Hong Kong. George, do you have um, sort of a, a hot take on those sales? Um, I think that, you know, Hong Kong sales followed a trend that I think we first started seeing in New York um, with a retreat towards some more blue chip things, uh, scaling down of price prices realized for younger and sort of darling names in the market. Um, it's seemingly a tricky, becoming a trickier landscape for the side of the market. Um, when it comes to auction sales, maybe auction sales not being the most surefire thing in terms of big returns as they were a year ago. Um, Overall, there was, I think the sale was very well managed um, to get the sell-through rates that they did, um, which is always a big challenge for the auction houses. So, you know, on, on one hand, you know, the results don't echo the sales we've seen in Hong Kong past. Um, but I think the team there did a job, a, a good job to manage the sell-through rate overall. And none of this was unexpected. I mean, ever since the uh, inflation started getting out of control and the Fed in the U.S. started tightening rates, everyone's been looking to the art market and wondering if, you know, some of these levels of sales could be sustainable. And I don't think anyone thought they would be sustained forever. So uh, the the management is more about managing the inevitable. uh, And those are always the hardest sales to, to manage because seller expectations and buyer sort of demands don't necessarily meet up easily. To- totally. And I think that's that's pretty spot on. Um, you know, I think another another factor here was the fact that the restrictions in Asia and specifically Hong Kong have loosened up a bit. So there's more focus on travel and moving around and being abroad. Um, I don't know how much of a factor that played in actual results, but I have to, you know, talking to a few people who are active in the region, this definitely seems this is something that was said to me more more than once. So, you know, I think there was, you know, we had this moment where locals on the ground are, you know, able to move around a bit more freely. And so maybe not spending as much on art locally as they were previously. 
So I also wanted to point out, though the sales were, you know, a, a bit of a standoff between buyers and sellers, there were a number of names that have consistently sold very well, who sold again really well. Let me just read them off. Um, and this is not an exhaust, exhaustive list, but it is, you know, Emily May Smith, who has done well in Hong Kong and uh, in the West, for a number of sales cycles. Maria Berrio, the same. Lynn Drexler, who we've been talking about almost constantly this year. Lucy Bull, Louise Bonet. One, they're all women. Uh, two, some of them are uh, uh, heavily abstract uh, artists. We could add there were some uh, artists like Atsushi Kaga and Joel Mesler and even the Japanese artist Mister, who all had strong sales. Uh, above expectations just in terms of the uh, the estimates, but also I think, you know, people normally assume that when markets begin to turn that these are the more vulnerable artists and they are the ones that seem to perform better uh, than expectations. Sophie, Arena, do you guys have sort of market intel on are people still looking for those artists? Do you have a sense of what, you know, your clients are talking about, thinking about those artists? People are definitely still looking for Lucy Bull. That's somebody that we hear a lot. Um, her name pop up in the market. She has the solo show in New York right now, um, which when I was there on a random weekday was quite busy. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of interest. Um, Emily Mae Smith also has a show up right now that just opened in New York. Uh, so, you know, this was a great painting by her and of large scale. So it wasn't surprised to see it hit that number. But those are two names that, you know, I think we all continuously hear from collectors in the market and are just getting a lot of attention, at least uh, from a New York point of view right now. And is the demand come from people see this great show? Most likely there's a lot of demand uh, with the primary gallery and a waiting list. And so they they have to move to auction if they want to get a shot at acquiring one of the works. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, you're going to end up on a long waiting list for either of those two names. Um, and, you know, people are eager to get in on these two markets, especially Lucy Bull. She just seems to be the one that nobody can escape talking about. Um, but Emily Mae Smith, you know, has been around a bit longer and has been equally as hard to get on the primary market. So I think people are looking for ways around auction and the galleries. So, um, yeah, we're just hearing it a decent amount. I think all of us would say the same. And I noticed Izumi Kato is another artist who sold closer to expectations, but still substantial numbers. It, it, is that um, uh, Hernan Basa should be probably put in that category too. But is that something more uh, related to it being Asia and the, the taste of Asian clients? Or is that something that just this is the opportunity uh, in the calendar to, to auction these works? I would say it's the opportunity in the calendar to to offer those works. It was a nice, for Cato specifically, it was a nice, a nice result, you know, kind of tracks to the high level. And I think in the, many of these cases, tracking back to something that Sophie said about Lucy Bull and Maria Barrios, that those those prices in particular are the, that's kind of like the private sale ask prices. So we're seeing a correlation between auction market results and private sale asks. Um, you know, and I think we're also, again, we can throw Cato into this conversation with Emily May Smith and, you know, this kind of move in surreal and more surrealist terms alongside abstraction, right? If those are the things that are attracting good bids, then good examples in, in those categories seem to 
perform better than other things. So just to switch back from the, the primary or contemporary market or the, you know, the sort of leading edge of it, uh, I wanted to talk about the top three lots just to see what they tell us a little bit about where the market is and, and going. The, the top lot was a Richter abstract that sold for about $25 million, which was a little below what they were looking for, but still a, a big number. And that's, in fact, uh, uh, a bit more than twice the $11.6 million that the consigner paid for it 11 years before. The number three lot was a Basquiat that sold for $3.6 million, and seven years before it had sold for about a million. So again, none of these were at the expectations of the low estimate, but they were still good returns for holding the works. Though there was the in-between was a Peter Doig painting that had sold, uh, I think it was about eight years ago, for $14.5 million and sold here for $9.5 million. Uh, and and I don't know if that's, you know, we've talked earlier or late last year about there was a lot of demand for lower value Doig wor works and the sense that this, you know, end of the Doig market was quite expensive. I think it was late last year, uh, there was a $30 million, $35 million Doig uh, that sold. So uh, I, I wanted to get your sense, George, on, you know, as this comes down, are we going to see some individual uh, artists like Doig who maybe this is not the right moment in their cycle? Or is this maybe a, a sort of painting specific uh, issue? And I think there's such a limited quantity in Doig of what can get out onto the secondary market that, you know, at the very top end, and I think we talked about this in a past episode, that you kind of have this recycling of certain iconic Doig paintings from a certain time period and, and Wingmere being clearly one of those. So um, you know, I think I think it's maybe just poor timing in the market that you saw the depreciation in price or, you know, what what you could get, you know, a secured bid on the work for um, to manage the sale. You know, I think the same is probably true for the Richter. Sure, it brought a big ROI, but, I, you know, the bidding on the ground was pretty thin and I think it sold on like one one or two bids at the end. So that goes back to something I said at the beginning of the show, you know, well, well managed really in terms of getting the sale done ahead of time. Um, more more than fast and furious interest, but Richter on the whole, I think, has also been a sort of touch and touch and go market, especially at the, the highest heights of it in recent years. Well, I think with Richter, there's it's a bigger market, and there's still demand, even if the demand isn't very competitive. So this was a good. Uh, everyone should be happy with that sale, right? The 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 consigner the consigner got good money, maybe not as much as uh, he had hoped, and the um, buyer got good value. Talking about Freeze, which uh, opens on Wednesday, uh, does anyone have sort of uh, you know expectations or or uh, ideas uh, in front of things that they want to see or are hoping to you know learn from this edition of Freeze? I know there's one element of this is just that we have the opening of Art Basel's Paris Plu uh, Fair the next week, uh, but in in the interim, Freeze is kind of the um, you know, tentpole of the art market. And I'd love to get everyone's uh, take on what they're hearing from uh, clients and their own interest about what's taking place uh, at Freeze. Uh, Adam, do you want to sort of start us off with uh, your your take on all of this? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Marian. Um, well, I, th I think there's definitely excitement in the air in the art world in London uh, for Freeze kickoff. And um, 
sort of that lies in concert with a lot of the London sales as well at auction houses. Um, but I have noticed that, you know, it's, it's slightly more muted than it was last year. And I think that's just because, as you said, Paris plus opens the following week and, um, people are sort of maybe choosing one or the other, um, not everyone, but some people, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very excited for it to open a lot of parties and a lot of great presentations are going to take place and yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them. Is it that people are holding back and sort of choosing to do one fair or the other, or that they have to sort of spread the material they're bringing out across both fairs and it's sort of somewhat muted by that? I think my comment was more uh, in connection to collectors traveling to one or the other. Um, I think, I mean, a lot of the London galleries are putting out pretty great presentations, at least in the previews that I've seen, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing them. How's your birth? has an incredible selection? Victoria Moreau, White Cube. So so um, overall, just looking forward to seeing how the works perform. And, and by perform, you mean what sales are announced uh, on the first day or really at the end of the fair, what's been sold? Uh, you know, I like numbers. So definitely on the first day, <laughs> what goes first? What's the hottest right now? Very interested to see. Victoria Miro's presentation as they're focusing on uh, you know, Portuguese artists that passed away this year, Paula Rigo. Um, and I think, you know, she passed away at a particularly poignant moment, uh, given the American um, Supreme Court ruling, um, as she was pretty influential in overturning um, some abortion laws in Portugal with presentations of her paintings. So I think that that will be a, yeah, a great presentation. And I, you know, my thoughts on Victoria Miro is that they're extremely tasteful and intelligent um, with their selection. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I've also seen uh, Pace's preview and um, it's a pretty strong survey of their program. Um, and I'm excited to see it all come together. And in any particular artists at Pace that you're... I really love the uh, Song Dong sort of sculptures. Um, they create this sort of like wooden window, like moving complex figures that you can get in and get behind. And I really love the look of them. So I'm excited to see more of those. Sophie, anything you're looking uh, forward to at uh, Freeze? Yeah, I'm really interested in Freeze Masters is doing this spotlight section. Um, which is curated by the co-founder of AWARE, which is the Archives of Women Artists Research and Exhibitions, which is based in Paris. It's an amazing resource of just, you know, research, information, exhibition history on women artists from past, present. So uh, she is the co-founder is curating 28 galleries in the spotlight section. And there's an amazing array of historical discoveries, rediscoveries in this freeze master section. So um, I think that'll be a big draw for people, A, to kind of get out of freeze, like contemporary, the London section, get over to Masters. Sometimes it can be a little bit of fair fatigue to do both, but I have been perusing and if I was going, that would be the first place I would hit up. So definitely check it out, Adam, um, while you're wandering around. I think that'll be a great section and I think there'll be artists that people find that they never knew before. So definitely, I think it's a, it's a nice it's a nice collaboration between Aware and Freeze because I've been a big fan of Aware for a long time for doing research and um, I haven't really seen them do many partnerships like this. And are there any names from AWARE that you can mention? Yeah, so there's an um, the um, American artist, Pat Pasloff, who is uh, Milton Resnick's wife. Not that, you know, that, <laughs> that makes her, that is like the reason to, to look her up, but she's with Eric Firestone. 
Um, and she's going to be in the spotlight section at Free. I think her work is just really, really wonderful. She was an active part of that post-war abstraction art community in New York. Her paintings are really like poetic responses to memory and experience and places. So definitely somebody that I would be looking at um, at the fair. And I think that they're going to bring really nice examples. She was close friends with Elaine de Kooning and Joan Mitchell. So um, and Eric Firestone does a great job of kind of bringing these rediscoveries back to light. A lot of research goes into it. And, and I, th- I think we all think that those are the kinds of things that will continue on even as the market sort of tightens up. Uh, through the fall and maybe next year, right? That that a historical artist is easier for the market to wrap its um, head around than necessarily a new name as exciting as as some of the new names uh, are. That there's there's a, a whole body of work to look at and a a chance to assess it all at once. Yeah, definitely. And I think you know maybe there's a feeling of safety in that or something um, kind of in that realm. But you know the Milton Resnick and Pat Passloff Foundation is also very active and they support a lot of younger artists. So I think the name has been out there. So I'm excited to see collectors respond to the work being displayed at the fair. Um, I also just think in the context of this kind of um, look back with aware, this curation, it'll be great to see these works together and be able to get a context of how these women probably interacted or had some level of, you know, looking towards each other because they're all of the 20th century. Um, so definitely something to look at there. And they're also from all over the world. So there's some Hungarian artists, there's some, um, you know, self-taught artists from Alabama, like Sister Gertrude Morgan. So definitely something that's really a cross section of the 20th century. And, and I assume a wide ray uh, uh, stylistically. Yeah, you know, abstract, figurative. There's some, um, there's a few Korean artists in there that are, you know, very reminiscent of abstract expressionism here in the States. So yeah, there's a little bit of everything. And George, I know you're going to Paris the week after, but I'm sure you are keeping your eye on uh, London. Oh yeah, of course. And uh, only only due to personal scheduling that I couldn't be in London uh, ahead of Paris. But sometimes, you know, the art world isn't everything. Don't say don't say that, George. The art world is everything. (laughs) Everything. Eat, eat, sleep and drink it. Um, You know, it's it's interesting. I was catching up with a dealer in London this morning who has an opening tonight. And she was saying how, you know, impressive some of the other galleries offer shows and exhibitions that are opening this week are. And that felt like a lot of people were in town, you know, both Americans and Europeans from other cities. Um, which is refreshing after the last two years. Um, it really feels like London back up to its sort of on the ground big moment. And, and Breeze historically was always like the best from the auction house perspective of like boots on the ground and people in town and, and that. And yeah, a lot of Americans do do the double week because it used to be FIAC. Um, sometimes they butt up against each other. Now it's Perry Plus. Um, Paris has some interesting, I'm very interested in the Paris there's one because it's Basel taking over the Fiac slot and what kind of changes that will have to the summer Basel Basel and now this Paris fair. Paris in October being a very lovely time to be there. I think Paris as a city offers, you know, some pretty impressive international galleries, some very great local galleries. I always thought that at Fiac, you know, the mix, instead of you know, having freeze and freeze masters and dividing out the secondary dealers from the primary dealers, this ability to blend in some of the independent secondary dealers that would show up in that fair alongside lots of the top name 
you know, international galleries created a really, really special offering. Um, so it's always a, a kind of a place where I felt like you could find something unexpected or that you weren't planning on wanting to look for. Um, you know, I, and I, and part of it too, is I, I wonder about the just general trend shift to Paris. Does Paris, despite all the sort of KYC legislation and all this, offer from a tax and import perspective an easier flow of post-sale business for some of these galleries? If they're bringing in material from Europe, they don't have to import it. They can just stay in free circulation. You know, maybe there's an ease of use. And I think that's somewhat interesting with the Italian sale at Christie's. I think it's going to start happening in Paris, right? So can Paris be the home for $10 million Fontanas in the future, as opposed to London, which has been the historical seat for these top ticket sales in Europe? That, I mean, that's, I think, all to play for. Um, but there's certainly some, some something to watch and to see what happens there. Oh, I, I, I think that fair in the politics of the global fairs and the broader competition between Art Basel and Freeze, which have both expanded somewhat in different directions, that this is a kind of real um, proof point. Uh, it, it, it's no doubt it was very smart for them to launch a fair in Paris uh, you know, Paris is the capital of the luxury goods industry and the art industry has gotten a lot closer to fashion and luxury goods over the last uh, 15 or 20 years. And so it seems obvious that there should be some sort of event that brings the two worlds together and that the opportunities for that to grow seem, you know, fairly uh, limitless if the uh, global economy doesn't, you know, go into some sort of uh, uh, wintry retrenchment. But but even with that, the, the question of doing it in October, uh, it wasn't clear that that would be the ideal time. I, I mean, I'm sure it's hard to schedule a fair uh, in Paris to, to begin with. And so since FIAC was on that week, uh, it made some sense. But yes, it, it now sort of puts the two big fair companies somewhat in direct competition. And I'm, it, it is interesting that you raise this issue about um, Basel in Basel, which I've heard from some other uh, you know people sort of at the heart of the uh, art market, which is if if you have a great fair in Paris, will people feel the need to go to Basel in the future? Um, I, I suppose all of that r remains to be seen, and it's is up to Art Basel to you know give uh, the dealers the right incentives to continue to make uh, you know Basel in June the kind of premier art fair that it has been for. Uh, so many years, and and we should you know mention there will be auctions to coincide with um, this fair as well. They they were already growing around Fiac, and now uh, the auction houses are beginning to put um, as you mentioned the Italian sales, but also more of this sort of European uh, art. That does raise an interesting question, George. Is is there kind of a different taste in art among European collectors? than there is from sort of global collectors. I mean, there are artists that sell better in Paris, um, and we're now sort of seeing this because of Brexit, moving some of these sales like the Italian to the, the continent. But on a sort of collector uh, level, uh, I assume there is kind of some some difference between the, the global collectors and, and the Europeans. Yeah, and I think, you know, Europeans make up a significant chunk of global art collections. But I think if you distill that down to what has historically been sold at auction in Paris, it very much suits a regional market. Not it's not a full blown statement, but um, you know, traditionally you wouldn't have a Russell Memes 
Andy Warhol in that sale like you do now. So I think this is a bit of a testing of the water to see if you can put some of these things that would be more akin to a New York AM day sale session, possibly an evening sale session, um, and put them alongside, you know, a Germain Richier or something that's more akin to the Paris market on Spartoon um soulage when you know soulage is kind of going the other direction but these kind of historical top names for the paris sales being exported and in return seeing some more you know i'd say american american market material no and there are a group of uh uh Barcelo and uh, Valdez and other, um, you know, uh, even to some extent, someone like Paul Arrigo, uh, Adam, you know, who uh, it may make more sense for those sales to uh, and those markets to be somewhat managed uh, on the continent rather than out of London in the future. Anything else that we should be looking to to sort of get a temperature of the market, to, you know, in the news reports? I, you know, I, I hesitate to say the sales reports because the uh, galleries have gotten so good about releasing on the first day uh, lots of sales that they've you know organized in the weeks leading up to uh, the fairs. But, but what, what are you looking at to see if this is um, either just a, a good freeze or is a uh, sort of tell about the state of the art market um, over the next week? Um, well, I'm, I'm interested to see how the pound... Um, being relatively cheap um, against the dollar plays into the London sales. Um, I think that, you know, from the people I speak to who work in the the primary market at galleries, I don't think that they're too concerned with the softening of the market as, you know, they have pretty good demand for, you know, quote unquote, blue chip or, or very, very hot artists. Um, but yeah, I would say just this sort of cheap pound and see how that comes into play um, in buying property in London. I was actually also going to mention the currency as the dollar seems to be, you know, one of the strongest or if not the strongest. But to me, I'm very curious to see how the market in London performs at freeze, you know, especially geography of the buyers, um, because majority of people are coming from Europe rather than from the US or Asia. So we'll see. Fully, fully agree with Adam on this. Will you guys get a sense from your clients about how the fair is going? Meaning when you talk to clients, do they tell you, you know, uh, I bought this or I didn't buy that because it, you know, uh, uh, there wasn't anything good or it was the, the prices were too high. Uh, do you get that kind of active feedback for, uh, from your clients sort of during the course of a fair week? Yeah, I think so. I, I think you will. And I think, you know, from my perspective, what happens in the auctions will be more telling. Um, Freeze has always been an interesting fair. I don't know that it's always the most successful fair, um, but it is definitely a global stop. So, you know, I think I think what happens, what happens in the public realm will be more telling of the kind of health of everything. And I agree that I think the currency plays a big factor here. We've lost 10 cents on the dollar in like under a few weeks and sort of stabilized at 110 USD to one GBP. And that represents good buying power for anyone who's dollarized um, to come in locally rather than, you know, spending at a 120 to 130 currency exchange rate. Um, so I think that's, that's all, it's all in there and in part of the big questions of the week, you know, is there a continued trend and softening of the younger market? Does the blue chip swing in and stabilize the sell, sell through rates, or are we going to see kind of a leveling off of all that or a continued overall trend? I suppose we'll also see from the fair reports, whether, uh, many of the sales are conducted in either euros or dollars. Also, it's interesting because the prices, uh, I'm just curious to see from some of the previous, if the emerging market prices are going to rise, 
because from some of the conversations that I'm having with the galleries here or abroad, they're just saying that we might increase our pricing on this artist, you know, closer to the fair. And it's specifically because the reaction to the current state of the market, they still want to maintain their artists, um, you know, and support the inventory as well as the gallery. So mitigating the very thing that people might be going to London to try and achieve. Exactly. (laughs) Well, uh, equilibrium always seems to find its way back into markets, so that should be no surprise. Well, guys, uh, uh, thank you all for uh, taking the time. This has been uh, an education, uh, as always, and I hope to speak to some or all of you again next week. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Marion. Thank you, Marion. Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. The Artelligence podcast is edited by Colin Ketchum, who also composed the original music. Come back next week. And don't forget to download the Live Art app or visit us at liveart.io. 